As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. I really don't think that AI as it is now is on a trajectory to becoming conscious, but it will certainly seem as though machines have conscious minds, and that's a danger. If consciousness is a property of the brain, then it's subject to what we call causal determinism, physical determinism. This idea of libertarian free will, I think is entirely wrong, and I also think it's unnecessary. These systems will become more and more like us. People will treat them and want them to be treated as though they're human. The challenge now is it seems to be going faster and faster. We are terrible at projecting out long-term consequences. Robot rights, I can see it coming. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians talking. I'm Peter Byram and today we conclude our special Big Conversation two-parter, The Robot Race. In part one, Christian professor Nigel Crook and atheist professor Anil Seth discussed the question, could artificial intelligence ever replace humanity, and were mostly on the same page. This time, however, we get to hear how their views fundamentally diverge as they debate the nature of human consciousness and how it compares to the capabilities of robots as we consider the question, how should humanity flourish in an AI world? As mentioned in part one, this isn't the first time that Nigel Crook has appeared on The Big Conversation. In season four, Dr. John Wyatt and Lord Martin Rees had a fascinating discussion about robotics, transhumanism, and the future of humanity during which they gave their reactions to some highlights of an interview that Nigel did with Justin Brierley, along with Nigel's special robot friend named Now. Well, if you sign up at thebigconversation.show, you'll get to watch that full interview with Nigel Crook, as well as getting the ebook edition of the John Wyatt and Martin Rees episode, spanning more than a hundred pages of transcripts and bonus articles, including one written by Nigel himself. You will also get the chance to win a copy of Professor Nigel Crook's book, Rise of the Moral Machine. We'll pick five winners at random out of the people who've signed up over the past month, but hurry, because that opportunity is only going to last until the end of September. You will also be granted special access to watch new Big Conversation episodes a whole week early, as well as receiving updates and access to hours of more exclusive video and ebook content too, so if you haven't already, why not sign up right now at thebigconversation.show. And now, for part two of The Robot Race, over to our host, Andy Kind. Hello and welcome back to The Big Conversation from Premier Unbelievable, brought to you in partnership with the John Templeton Foundation. 
Today's episode is entitled The Robot Race Part 2, How Should We Flourish in an AI World. I am your host, Andy Kind. I am not a robot. I have been joined today by two very distinguished guests, back by popular demand. We have Anil Seth and we have Nigel Crook. Welcome back. And we've checked that these guys are not robots either. They had to uh, tick all the boxes with bridges and traffic lights in. So we have confirmed that they are, in fact, human beings. And, uh, you know, guys, I have a scriptwriter. Did you know that? We have the budget for a scriptwriter. So I'm going to read the scripted introduction and then we'll talk about, it won't be a surprise to you at this point, who the scriptwriter is. So listen to this. Today, we dive back into the captivating world of artificial intelligence with the robot race part two, how should humanity flourish in an AI world? It's like we're caught in a sequel, but this time the stakes are higher and we're all wondering if we're living in the matrix or just another complex algorithm. Back by popular demand are two phenomenal guests making their triumphant return. First up, we have Nigel Crook, the AI maestro himself. But wait, there's more. We've got the brilliant Anil Seth, the neuroscientist extraordinaire, who is sure to blow your mind. He's all about being you. And I have to admit, I'm curious if that means I'm just a simulation running on some cosmic computer. I mean, don't tell me if I am. I don't want an existential crisis on air. In this thrilling sequel, Nigel Crook and Anil Seth are back to tackle the pressing questions about humanity's place in an AI world. With Nigel's Rise of the Moral Machines and Anil's Being You under their belt, they're armed with knowledge to navigate this digital frontier. Now... Here's the kicker. This introduction, like last time, was crafted by none other than ChatGPT, the AI language model. I mean, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? An AI writing about AIs. It's like asking an artist to paint their own portrait. But hey, that's the digital age for you. So folks, get ready for an electrifying ride as we delve into the robot race part two, how should humanity flourish in an AI world with our remarkable guests, Nigel Crook and Anil Seth. It's time to laugh, to ponder, and maybe question our reality just a bit. Let's roll. That's robots for you. So uh, welcome back. Like last time, we got ChatGPT to write the introduction. Uh, slightly more complimentary, do you think, this time? It was very bombastic again, it wasn't was it? Bombastic it was bombastic and didactic, wasn't it? I wonder it? if it was asked to write them in a particular style. It seemed to be, I don't yeah. know, seemed to be a kind of musical style. Musical sort of, and, yeah. And also, I noticed at the end, there was there's still a, a sort of dead giveaway, wasn't it, when it said yeah. um, that would be like asking an artist to paint a portrait of it of the artist. It's yeah. Like, have you not heard of self-portraits? <laughs> yeah. Quite a big deal <laughs> in art over the last few centuries. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So no, it was a very bombastic intro. The fact that you're not here to put your head into a lion's mouth or, you know, walk a, a tightrope, Nigel, mm. you know, it doesn't really fit the intro. But we'll see how we get on. I'm sure yeah. it'll be entertaining uh, nonetheless. Sure. And that is the thing though, isn't it, with Chat GPT, with AI. We talked in the previous episode about how artificial intelligence is a bit of a misnomer, but that's part of the popularity. If ChatGPT was simply described as applied statistics, it wouldn't be popular in the same way. But I remember I got uh, recently, I asked ChatGPT to write a short horror story in the style of Stephen King, and it wrote a short horror story. 
but it was very remedial. The function and the framework was correct. It would have got a mark at GCSE, but there was no real imagination. There was no real twist. There was no subtext to it. So that's sort of where we are. But as you have said previously, Anil, it's so confident. It's so convincing in its communication that you sort of you sort of buy into it, don't you? You think, well, it, it's a computer and it seems to know what it's talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very flatly confident. I think it's got this uniform level of assurance about, about everything that comes out of it, um, which is one of the reasons I actually find it a little bit dull, to be mm. honest. I mean, it, it's, it's, if you ask people, had lots of fun asking GPT to write poetry, mm. and it's really terrible mm. poetry, isn't mm. it? It's really not very, not very good at all. And I think it belies something we talked about before, about the things that we can be tempted to project into these systems that they don't actually have mm. and the dangers that arise when we do this. Now, if we believe that GPT understands things, mm. if we believe mm. that it knows things, if we believe that it knows about what it's saying, mm. and ultimately, of course, and we're gonna talk about this, if we believe it's conscious, if mm. we believe there's an actual conscious mind sitting behind the text that spews out of it, mm. then I think we can get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, great. Well, we are going to talk about consciousness, mind, identity, what it means to be conscious. Obviously, both of you have um, strong views on, on that, and I'm sure we'll be able to unpack that. So let's just talk about your origin stories a little bit, how you got here. Nigel, we'll start with, with you. Mm. Not simply how did you get to this table today but what is your background and are you surprised by where your career trajectory has ended up um yes i am surprised my background <clears throat> so in terms of uh, my upbringing i was a catholic brought up a catholic um i then after university became a methodist uh, and about just over 20 years ago i had a, a major moral crisis and I then became an Anglican, <laughs> uh, as you do. Um, uh, but that kind of got me interested in thinking about moral development. I started to reflect on my own moral development, having been at that point probably a, a Christian for um, 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. uh, and what did that mean in terms of developing character, developing moral character as, as a human being? Um, so that began that journey. In terms of my involvement with artificial intelligence and robotics, so I've been doing that now for nearly 40 years. Um, I started out in the medical domain, mm -hmm. uh, helping uh, uh, medics diagnose uh, uh, conditions with premature babies. Uh, I then moved on to uh, looking at how human brains function and process information. Did that for about a decade. Um, I think then, we all have at some point. Yes, Nigel. yes, I know, I know. Um, and then went into uh, robotics. So I've been a pretty much of a nomad in terms of both my religious <laughs> yeah. experience and uh, my academic experience. But in the last 10 years, I've become very interested in social robotics yeah. and robots around people, uh, and in particular about the moral implications of that um, and what it would mean for a robot to possess moral competence. And mm. that's kind of the convergence for me of that amateur interest in mm. uh, moral development, Christian moral development, mm. actually, 
uh, is what I l looked at and discovered new things about my own religion, which I didn't know, mm. um, uh, and also and robotics and, and sort of looking at how you can mix those two together, the theology mm. uh, and the AI and robotics uh, to, to produce simulations of moral competence. That's fantastic. Anil, what about you? What about your background and how you ended up here? Well, so I, I was born in Oxfordshire. Um, my mother was, uh, was from a Catholic family from Yorkshire, actually. Um, was my father uh, was from a Hindu family in Uttar Pradesh. And so when they got married in the 1960s, it's very hard to reconcile, I think, those two belief systems. So I grew up in a, in a very a-religious um, environment in South Oxfordshire. And, but I've always been interested in, in consciousness. Mm. And I think many, probably most people are at some point. And there's a point, I think, in all of our lives where we wonder, who are we? Why am I mm. me and not somebody else? Why am I here? Mm -hmm. um, what is it, does it mean to be a conscious person? That's a bit more of a sophisticated yeah. question, but, but they, they snowball. Do I have free will? All of these kinds of things I think we, we often grapple with. And, um, and then most people uh, get uh, onto different topics that they can earn a living with. But I remain fascinated by this, this mm. foundational question of human and animal consciousness, biological consciousness in general. And was also a bit of a nomad in how I ended up um, building a career about it. Because in the 1990s, when I was starting out in university, it wasn't really a thing you could do. Mm. Consciousness was, certainly scientifically, was pretty mm. much in the fringes or off okay. the table entirely. Yep, right. It was a matter for philosophy. It was indeed a matter for theology. Mm. Um, it wasn't really the subject of psychology, neuroscience, or anything okay. like that. But so my, tr my scientific training went around physics, it went around experimental psychology, my PhD was in AI, because mm -hmm. I, I thought then, in order to understand how the brain works, we really need to be able to build systems that exhibit some of these capabilities. The great physicist Richard Feynman mm -hmm. always said, we don't, can't build something, we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And it was only in the year, about 20 years ago that I was able to focus back squarely on understanding mm. consciousness by bringing together perspectives from many different disciplines, from philosophy, from psychology, from physics, mm. from mathematics, trying to understand what it is about these complex interactions mm. between brains, bodies, and worlds that brings about subjective experience, mm. the experience of there being a world and of being a person uh, within it. And so AI has always been part of, the, part of this equation. And over the last couple of years, it's become much more prominent part of, of what I do mm. because the tools have developed so rapidly and, and the discourse around them has evolved so rapidly also. Mm. So consciousness is a mystery that matters, is something that you would say. And this something is something I have said. It's something you have yeah. said. I wrote it down yeah. there. I'm just going to change Andy Kind 2023. <laughs> uh, so that's really interesting because probably although you both agree on lots of things, maybe for different reasons. But in the previous conversation we had, there was almost no area of divergence. We are mm. probably going to uh, find the sort of the the battle line here in a, in a gentle way. For you, though, another thing you've said, Anil, is that consciousness is any subjective experience. So that's how you would boil down consciousness, any subjective experience? It's always tricky to define it precisely. In fact, there's still a lot of philosophical argument about how we define consciousness. Um, but I think we don't need to come up with a fully consensus definition. Mm -hmm. We just have to make sure we're not talking past each other. Mm -hmm. 
And so by describing consciousness as any kind of experience whatsoever, it could be the experience of of redness when you're looking at a beautiful sunset mm -hmm. or the taste of a red wine. It could be the, the feeling of joy or the of pain of a toothache or the experience of being a person mm. with its emotions, moods, sense of agency, free will, all of these things, any kind of experience whatsoever. And I think this broad lens on consciousness is useful because it, it stops us, if you like, um, associating consciousness with things that it isn't, like intelligence, mm. which mm -hmm. is relevant to our current conversation. Mm -hmm. Intelligence, the explicit sense of being a person, mm -hmm. language, all of these things that go along with consciousness in humans I think are, if you like, optional extras. Yeah. And a system that has subjective experience for which there is something it is like to be that system. Mm, yeah. You know, that's enough. Yeah. And so for you, consciousness is a bundle of perceptions. That's in practice the way I approach the, the topic. The philosopher David Chalmers has talked for many years about the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Mm -hmm. If we think about how we might understand conscious experience. It seems mm. like an almost intractable mystery. You know, we have this insanely complicated biological machinery inside our skulls, the brain connected to the body and the world. On the, and that's on the one hand. And on the other, we have this realm of subjective experience, mm. the redness mm. of red, the sharpness of pain. How can we ever explain one in terms of the other? I mean, this is a thing that theology touches on as well, right? I mean, mm. there's, there's certain perspectives there. And my perspective on it is maybe not to address it head on mm. and try and find the magic source that, that creates consciousness out of biology, but to explain the properties that mm. conscious experiences have. Every kind of conscious experience, I think, can be usefully thought of as a kind of perception. Mm -hmm. We're used to thinking about that when we think about the outside world. Mm -hmm. you know, I perceive a world around me. But it also, I think, applies to the self. Mm. So the self, the experience of being you, Andy, or you, Nigel, or me, Anno, is not the thing that does the perceiving, mm -hmm. in my view. It's a bundle, a collection of perceptions that the brain is forming, in this case, that are grounded yeah. in the body itself. So the self is a form of perception rather mm. than a thing or essence yeah. that does the perceiving. And I think approaching consciousness this way we begin to dissolve its sense of mystery and we can understand how and why conscious experience fits in to this, you know, this emerging picture of mm. hum human beings, other yeah. animals as continuous with the rest of nature. That is really helpful. Thank you. Nigel, where do you disagree? <laughs> um, well, there's a lot that you've said that, uh, that I would agree with. Uh, the brain is doing a lot of perception. Uh, obviously, it's doing a lot of processing, processing of sensory signals. Um, my, part, my point of departure is that um, the reference point is uh, not the brain itself. I don't, I don't uh, align with the view that um, consciousness arises from the brain. Uh, I'm a dualist, which means I believe that the, the mind is um, deeply connected with the brain, mm -hmm. but is beyond, is beyond that. Um, and... The sort of the theological connection to that um, is uh, uh, reality is described as a deeply integrated dual mm -hmm. reality. Uh, biblically speaking, heaven and earth are the terms that are used. Mm -hmm. uh, earth is the material side. 
heaven is the non-material side uh, and that human beings are reflect that reality mm -hmm. that we have a mixture a dual nature um, and the mind which includes the consciousness and thought and feelings and so on um, is deeply interconnected with the brain mm -hmm. but is not in it's not identical with the brain yeah yeah that that's fantastic so anil would would feel that or believe that you can measure consciousness somehow yeah but i mean let me just say i don't think consciousness is identical to the brain i mean the brain is a physical um device consciousness mm -hmm. is a property that 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 system has in conjunction mm -hmm. with with the body in the world but i do think we found a point of of, of disagreement here yeah. so i'm yeah. i'm definitely not not a dualist yeah. you know i think so dualism was famously i think articulated by by rene descartes mm. back in the in the 17th century yeah. and you know his idea of how the 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 mental domain and the physical domain interact was yes. through the this tiny part mm -hmm. of the brain called the pineal gland in the yeah, middle yeah. and um yeah, actually his rationale for that is i thought quite funny is that there's only whereas most of the brain most parts of the brain we have on the two hemispheres we have like two copies one mm -hmm. on each side the pineal gland there's only one of so mm -hmm. if you're trying to find a location where these two domains interact then it's sort of parsimonious yes. to, to fix on that it's entirely yeah. wrong yeah. um <laughs> but it's it's there's there's an elegance to that idea so i think there's there's a basic point in disagreement but i don't think it's it's as as, a, as much of a gulf as as we might say so mm. consciousness um, is not identical to a physical system. It's a property of the physical system, and, and mm. quite what kind of property it is. You know, mm. there's a lot of scope for for discussion there. But I do think that it is part of physical reality. Yeah, you know, that you know, the same physical reality that exists all around mm. us that makes up our body, makes up the the rest of the world. And indeed, it's something that you can begin to measure. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the the tricks in science, I think, of making something amenable to a scientific mm. description is the ability to form measurements about yeah. it. Mm. And that's what has brought the study of consciousness largely within the realm of science, this, yeah. this, this ability. Yeah. So for me, I think <clears throat> I, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about consciousness as a property of the brain. Um, and I definitely I understand that. I think the the area where I would push it a bit further is the the issue to do with free will, um, libertarian free will, the ability to be able to choose um, within constraints but with certain freedom. Um, if if uh, consciousness is a property of the brain, mm -hmm. then it's subject to what we call causal determinism, physical mm -hmm. determinism. In other words, brain states mm -hmm. um, that arise. Uh, follow one from the other um, and physics tells us that um, and I believe it um, that, that one brain state is caused by the previous brain state mm -hmm. and so on uh, and the, the the challenge then is how do you fit free will if we have free will at all into that into that context mm -hmm. um, so I, I struggle with the idea that it's just a property of the brain um, that to me we do have uh, uh, libertarian free will mm. uh, and that therefore means that we have our minds are extended beyond and not limited solely by causal determination yeah. in the brain and for you Nigel is it is it consciousness that makes us human because this is this is the thing that is is key as we look at AI what does it mean to be conscious what does it mean to be 
human? And is there a point without, in the absence of a, a soul, is there a point at which we could call AI conscious or sentient? So w this is why we're talking about mm. this. For you, can you speak to that, Nigel? Um, I think it's much more that, I mean, we're human, so we've got bodies uh, as well as minds and, and souls. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that I've kind of discovered in the last 10 years looking at moral development is that those three elements plus the social dimension mm. are fundamental to our uh, moral character development. Mm. Um, each one has a different role. The mm. spirit, the will uh, has a particular role. The soul has a, has a role. Um, and both are deeply in, integrated mm. with the body. They're not separate. I think one of the things that's, that uh, I realized um, during my study of this area is that we've adopted a lot of ancient Greek philosophy mm -hmm. when it comes to thinking about the soul and the body as being entirely separate things. Um, uh, but that was introduced into Christianity around the fourth century with mm -hmm. Augustine of Hippo. Mm -hmm. He liked uh, Greek philosophy and he integrated it into Christian thought and that's where we are now. Mm. Uh, but in in uh, um, Judeo-Christian tradition, they were seen as deeply integrated. Mm. They weren't seen as as, as, as separate, deeply mm -hmm. integrated uh, aspects of the human person. So to answer your question, the human person is all of those things. Okay. Consciousness is part of it, um, but it's but the the whole picture the the whole set of dimensions is what makes a human. So it's still a bundle, but not just a bundle of well, perceptions. Yeah, bundle to me is a loose connection. They're, they're, it's not a loose connection. It, it really is a tightly yeah. defined. And Neil, any response? Oh to yeah, that? I mean, <laughs> lots to respond to. But, but I'll be. Please. it's fine. I'll try and I'll try and be relatively concise. I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. I mean, free will. I think maybe we'll, we'll come back to just mm. to say now that, that this idea of libertarian free will, I think, is very, is very compelling. You know, it's the mm. idea that, that our mind has causal power over our, our brains, our bodies, in a mm. way that, that allows us to take responsibility for things and so on. I think it's entirely wrong, and, and I also think it's unnecessary. I think we can have all the free will that we need mm. um, from what in philosophy is called a compatibilist position, mm. that there's mm. a sensible... Uh, version of free will that is entirely compatible with there being no kind of uncaused causes mm -hmm. with yeah. as you say one state mm -hmm. following another with a bit of added noise so i think yeah. i think that is possible um we might not agree about that mm. and and then this uh, the idea of consciousness as being what makes us human i mm. think this is really interesting it's and i think the the theological perspective has engaged with this idea in a, in a different way to the scientific perspective and the, the perspective I would take on it is that the, the, the association of consciousness with the specifically human seems to me another example of the kind of human exceptionalism that mm. has led us astray many times before you know the earth mm. being the center of the universe and all, all this stuff mm. um, consciousness is expressed in a particular distinctive way in human beings quite what that is is still up for grabs mm -hmm. the kind of language we have the kind of culture we have is probably part of that mm -hmm. uh, but i certainly don't think it's limited to human beings you know going back to descartes again he he 
took quite a strong stand on this, basically reserving consciousness for human beings. Mm -hmm. I think at that time, partly to placate the religious authorities, mm -hmm. um, even though what he was saying kind of implied that there was no good mm -hmm. reason from his philosophy to, to, to make that to make that case. And I think now um, the basic brain mechanisms that we see in humans that are responsible for or underlie consciousness, we see in many other animals as, as well. Yeah. And I see, yeah, no reason to to restrict it in that way. But, you know, but what makes animals and humans different from ChatGPT? Mm -hmm. One of the things that makes it different might well be consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we might have this interesting contrast here, where many animals might be conscious in the in the sense of having ex subjective experiences even if just of pain pleasure suffering hunger thirst and all that and we might not realize it mm. whereas algorithms like chat gpt might give us the strong impression that they mm. have a human-like consciousness when there's absolutely nothing going on it's algorithms whirring away in the subjective dark mm. and if we fail to recognize that opposition, then we can get into all sorts of trouble because we start treating a non-conscious system as if it is conscious mm -hmm. and actually conscious systems as if they're not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you will know much better than me how much moral and ethical trouble that can land us in. Well, we're going to delve into that trouble. You're going to get into trouble in the in the <laughs> second half. But that's already the uh, end of part one. Thank you for those answers. That's exactly what I would have expected a robot to say, Anil. <laughs> so I'm having my suspicions about you. But on today's big conversation, we are talking about the robot race. How should humanity flourish in an AI world? My guests are Nigel Crook and Anil. Seth. Lots more to talk about. We'll be back after this short break. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus's death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask and You Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to the big conversation with me, your host, Andy Kine. Today's episode is entitled The Robot Race Part 2, How Should Humanity Flourish in an AI World? My guests today are Nigel Crook and Anil Seth, and we are having what ChatGPT might describe as a sort of majestic maelstrom of a conversation. And it's been great so far, everyone feeling happy. Very, very happy. Much, yeah. Yeah, yeah, despite yeah. not having a soul, Anil, you're still pretty. You're still <laughs> even, I'm even more happy. Even more even happy. More. A real freedom. And we want to talk about free will, and we want to go back to talking about uh, consciousness, and move on to talking about how we would flourish alongside AI. 
Anil, in the previous episode, you talked about metacognition. Could you talk about that again and explain what you mean by metacognition and how that bears out on AI? There's a property of human thinking, the human mind in general, which is that we not only see stuff, think stuff and know stuff, but we know that we're mm. doing those things. When if I open my eyes and look around me, I know I'm having a visual experience. If someone asks me what the capital of France is, and I say Paris, mm. I kind of know that I'm right. Mm. But if somebody asks me what the capital of Kazakhstan is, and I hazard a guess, then I, I'm, I know I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. That's metacognition. It's literally, it's cognition about cognition. Yeah. And this is important because it's, it's the ability to know about our own mental states that allows us to communicate in ways that are adaptive, that, that are useful. So basically to, to know when we're telling the truth, know when we're not telling the truth. Um, and language models so far, like ChatGPT, don't have this capability. Mm. They might do in the future, but they certainly don't do at the moment. Mm. And that's one limitation on, on their use, you know, they're, they're being applied in so many different domains because of their apparent fluency, but they do not distinguish between what is fact and what is artifact. Mm. Can I just follow on from You that? may, just Nigel, I want you brought, to. It's brought to mind uh, an, a different area of AI other than language models, because AI is a very broad uh, discipline um, called epistemic AI. Epistemic AI uh, l uh, processes data differently. So the way um, uh, language models and, and other normal AI systems work is that they have a, a, a set of data, huge amount of data, uh, very often, uh, and they train what we call a model uh, based on that data. And from that point on, the model is is only knows about that data. It doesn't know about anything beyond mm. that point, uh, which is a limitation because if it meets a situation it hasn't, that hasn't been taken care of by the data, it really doesn't know how to respond. It makes a guess uh, and it can be wrong, uh, and it, but it doesn't know it's wrong. Um, epistemic AI is a, has been around for a long time but hasn't quite got the traction mm. that uh, current forms of AI have but that um, operates differently. It, it says, okay, I've got this data, which describes uh, the current situation that I know of, but I'm not entirely convinced this is everything I need to know mm -hmm. about that. And it holds back a portion of its probability for unexpected things. And you mm -hmm. can then um, model situations where the AI, um, is making a guess, but it's also aware that it's aware. Yes, <laughs> simulated the awareness. Are important, right? Yeah, yeah. aware <laughs> that it's making a guess in the sense that there's a probability of probability. Is mm -hmm. how right am I in saying this? So yeah. But you talked earlier, Nigel, about having a moral crisis and moving into mm. Anglicanism. One of the <laughs> distinctions between AI and human beings is at the moment AI cannot have a moral crisis, can it? No, I don't think it can. I mean, it's, 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 they, they are things that, that we designed. Mm. Um, so it, it doesn't make any sense to attribute AI systems with, with moral agency. I don't think they're the kind mm. of things that can be held responsible for their actions in the same mm. way that we might hold 
humans responsible for mm-hmm. that. Of course, I think the interesting thing here is, is how AI holds up a mirror to our own human mm-hmm. intuitions mm-hmm. about this. You know, what makes us think that it's reasonable to hold humans responsible for their actions? You know, if, for instance, if I'm on the right track and we don't have the kind of free will that you're talking about, why should we ever hold anybody mm-hmm. responsible for their actions? Of course, there, there are reasons in terms mm-hmm. of rehabilitation and deterrence mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but strictly speaking, nothing is anybody's fault mm. on, on, this, on this view. Yeah. So I, quite, I think that's quite a productive role that, that AI can play. But yes, I think you're, you're right that language models themselves, they're not responsible for what they say. Mm. The designers of the system are partially responsible, but even they're not wholly, it's a kind of distributed responsibility yeah. here that, that exceeds any single mind and goes right out into the, you know, the economy, all, all the forces that have brought these things into existence. Exactly, and, and I think the, you raise a very good point that the data on which models like uh, GPT, the language models are trained on, is not curated. Mm. Nobody has gone and sat down and said, well, this bit of data actually represents a good moral perspective, a general moral perspective on the world. We should train our model to learn that. It's trained on everything. And as we know, if you've spent any time looking at the Internet, it is a real mishmash of stuff uh, that is uncurated. And I think these models have been trained on that and they will replicate it. Mm -hmm. It will come out. It's interesting, though, isn't it? As you were talking, I'm aware that already human beings and for a long time since the gaming revolution of the sort of early 80s people have been investing computers and software with the idea of moral agency when people rage quit a game they say a stupid game and they do blame the game i know after i once lost in the fa cup final with arsenal football manager and i wouldn't you know i blamed the game i decided that it had done it deliberately that it was scripted in some way mm-hmm. so it's interesting our perception of really what is just, again, pl- applied statistics, how we sort of project some kind of moral agency onto. Right, and, and science fiction films have dealt with this beautifully, I think. You know, they, they really probe at these intuitions. We have, you know, I think, 2001, one of the best examples of that, the computer, how closes the pod bay doors mm-hmm. and, and leaves the astronaut Dave Bowman out, outside. Do we hold... How responsible mm. for that action mm. part of our mind feels that we should another part of our mind mm. feels and in some sense knows that mm. that we shouldn't and mm. that the articulation of that in the film is beautiful M- more recently ex machina by Alex garland mm. i think is another fantastic example mm. of the the way in which we'll project moral agency into a a system and the film leaves it delightfully ambiguous mm. about what it would take for that to be justified now, my view is that it, a minimum condition is is consciousness. Mm-hmm. For something to be a true moral agent, it, it needs to have a certain degree of of awareness. Mm-hmm. And um, but that may be necessary. It might not be sufficient. Mm-hmm. Now, I think things can be moral. Uh, things can can be conscious without having moral agency. That's mm-hmm. that's for sure too. Mm-hmm. Many many animals are no doubt conscious, mm-hmm. but still lack awareness of their mm-hmm. actions and the potential consequences. Nigel? I think from the the human point of view, from my point of view, this is where we come to, sorry to bring it up again, but the free will, the libertarian free will, because I think the the fundamental um, issue there is is the freedom to want. It's not the freedom to act. Compatibilists will, uh, compatibilists, by the way, are 
Um, people like me. People, yes, you're a compatibilist. <laughs> um, well, you probably could define it better than I could, but you but don't see any conflict with the brain being mm. causally determined and free will because as long as there's nothing stopping you from doing what you want, mm. then you have the freedom to do what you want and then you have free will. But uh, I, I would kind of come back and say the freedom is in the wanting. It's, that's mm -hmm. where the freedom is, is not in the, in the acting, just in the acting, it's yeah. in the wanting. And I think um, that's important because our moral development depends on it. And our will, which uh, in Christian terms we might call it the spirit or the heart, mm. has three primary functions. One is that it's able to create, generate new ideas and thoughts, mm. original thoughts. Um, it's able to uh, select of the many thoughts that are in our head, what to focus attention on. Is it very important for moral development? What you focus your mind on is will indicate how you develop morally. Mm. And the and the third thing is that it it um, gives uh, it uh, will enact the thought that is currently the focus of the mind. Mm. So action, you choose to perform an action. You can think about an action. You can choose to perform it. Mm. So those three things together are very important for curating a heart that is well formed um, and morally upright for want mm -hmm. of a better word yeah um, and and you need both you need all those things it's not just a, a matter of being able to choose in a moment it's over time yeah curation and you would agree wouldn't you nigel that there is a, a large element of being human which which is sort of programming nurture and genetics and things yep. like that then it's interesting in the scriptures where jesus says no greater love hath man than this than to lay down his life for his friends which is actually counterintuitive because mm -hmm. we are wired for self-preservation for survival and theologically the lord flips that you would say would you um yes he does i mean so that so this is philosophers will often say that the the highest form of moral competence is being able to rise above your uh, natural inclinations mm. and your desires to do the right thing yeah and that's basically what he's saying mm. you you don't want to sacrifice yourself mm. uh, for your friends but out of l love for them you will do that so not so. simply dance to the music mm. of our genes no. anil respond well i think that's overly reductive um, <laughs> that i nothing we don't no aspect of our behavior is fully explained by, by our genes. You know, we are complicated mm -hmm. creatures. There's a, a phrase I again attributed to Daniel Dennett about degrees of freedom. So mm. organisms as complicated as, as us as human beings have multiple degrees of freedom. There mm. are many things that can cause any particular action or indeed can form any particular desire you know, mm. that can build up over, over time. And our brains have a degree of control over our actions that we don't see in, in mm. simpler organisms mm -hmm. yeah, and even in some some of our own brain states if i you know if i hit you on a knee with a hammer you'll you, know, you, you have a reflex action yeah that's not under your voluntary control but mm. there are other things that are under your voluntary control and that's that's an important distinction but what mm. does this voluntary control mean it doesn't mm. mean at least for me it doesn't necessitate that there's an uncaused cause, a kind of libertarian free will that's making mm. these things happen. It's that our brains have evolved very mm. 
complicated circuits of of selection, of preference, of of um, of goal um, orientation, that can make it so that our actions are not immediately constrained by our genes mm-hmm. or, or or the immediacies of our environment. And when we have this kind of competence to control mm-hmm. things, then I think we have all the all the free will that we really need. There's still no need for any non-physical causes in this. I mm-hmm. think it can all be cashed out um, physically, but there's still this important distinction between voluntary and, and involuntary behavior. Mm-hmm. This is great. Two very well articulated views. Let's move on now then into the sort of final section, if you like, and the question of how we should flourish in an AI world. So projecting slightly further into the future, AI has advanced. Maybe it's become sentient, maybe it hasn't. What would it mean for humanity to flourish alongside a fully developed AI? Come on, Anil. Well, actually, the first thing I'd say, this idea of of machines becoming sentient, Mm. just push back two very quick things on that. Firstly, the word sentience, I think, is really... Um, potentially misleading. Okay. It's, it's mm-hmm. used by different people to mean different things. For some people, something that is sentient mm-hmm. implies full conscious awareness. You know, it feels mm-hmm. like something to be that system. Mm-hmm. For other people, it just means that it's responsive to its environment. Mm-hmm. Like my central heating thermostat is sentient in that sense, right? But that's not a really interesting or important sense. Yeah. So I prefer to think about consciousness rather than sentience, mm-hmm. just to make that distinction sharp. Mm-hmm. And I really don't think there's that machines... AI as it is now is on a trajectory to becoming conscious. It's certainly on a trajectory to giving us the impression that it is, Mm. but it is not on the trajectory to actually becoming. And that, you know, people will, you might disagree. Certainly other people in AI disagree because they think consciousness is a function of information processing, that Mm. if you program the computer the right way, the lights would come on for it. Mm. I think consciousness is fundamentally biological. It's Mm. something that's a property of Mm. living organisms mm-hmm. at least that's my my best guess at, yeah. at, at the moment mm. but it will certainly seem as though machines have conscious minds and that's that's a danger because mm. you know then we'll we'll get misled we'll start to trust them when we shouldn't we'll impute states to them that they don't actually have and we'll encounter all the dangers we've already talked about yeah and we've seen some of it already um the, i don't know uh, if you <coughs> you've ever seen the boston dynamics videos of the humanoid robots, they're amazing. You should look them up. Um, that that climb up stairs and run over cobbles and all that kind of stuff. Technically very challenging. And what they do in the videos is they put the robots through its paces. So they'll they'll program it to pick up a box that's in front of it. And there's a guy with a big pole that pushes it back every time it moves towards the big box. And eventually he pushes it so hard that it falls over. Mm. Uh, and there was an outcry online because it was the guy was mistreating this robot that looked human when it moved mm. it moved like a human being and people project their anthropomorphized mm. properties of humanness onto robots and i think this is what we will face because uh, these systems will become more and more like us N- i agree entirely with what nil says that they they're not us definitely mm. not but people will treat them and want them to be treated as though they're human. Mm. And to some extent, I would align with that because um, 
you know, they're in the image of a human being. And if you're willing to beat up a, mm. something that's in the image of a human being, that kind of projects back on how you might treat real human beings. Yeah. But nevertheless, we're going to, I think we'll reach a point where the popular demand of people is that this, these systems be treated as if they're human when they're, we know jolly well that they're not. So robot rights. Robot rights. I can see it coming. Wow. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can see it coming. And again, we're back into the sci-fi territory, aren't we? <laughs> well, we are. We are a little bit. But you know, on on the point of mistreating machines that seem to have human-like properties, I mean, there's a good reason why we shouldn't do that. Right? I yeah. mean, there's there's ethical views Absolutely. on this that go back to Kant about the brutalizing effect it has on our own psychologies. It's mm-hmm. why you know we shouldn't we don't tear up dolls in front of children, even when it's perfectly clear that they're made of plastic. It's because mm-hmm. that cultivates know, unhealthy psychological attitudes mm, to things. Exactly. Um, so I think the, a response to this is to question this drive to make AI systems in our own image. I mean, mm-hmm. This is driven partly by science fiction, partly by commercial mm. imperative. And it neglects, I think, the perspective that we mentioned earlier, that if we think about the, the most optimistic scenarios, for us coexisting with AI. It's a complementary one. It's not one where AI is is, um, indistinguishable from us. It's one where we have systems that help us overcome some of our own cognitive frailties, of Mm. which there are very, very Mm. many. I mean, we are terrible at projecting out long-term consequences, why Mm. we're doing so badly at dealing with the climate emergency Mm. now. Mm. We are terrible about- I invested in Bitcoin. Well, that could have been good. You it, know, wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't good. I mean, we're terrible at so many things. And, and where technology has worked, it's worked by complementing our species-specific weaknesses. And I think there is a good future in building systems that are like that. And that's not the future of building things in our own image. Mm. But I think, I mean, I agree with you. And I think that the issue is that the commercial drive will push us in that direction. Um, because we love our own image. We're narcissistic. Mm. Anything that moves like a human being um, or talks like or behaves like a human being, we're drawn to that Mm. and we'll pay money for it. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, there is this push-pull that there will be a commercial driver to create more and more human-like systems. But we do have to, and I think Anil's right, we do have to recognize that that, that we are different from machines mm. um, and that to benefit, to flourish, we do need to work together. There needs to be that complementarity between human and machines. Mm. And I think we will do it. We, we are adaptable. If you look back at how we've been through the last hundred years development of technology, we have adapted. Society has adapted. Jobs have changed. Mm. People have worked differently, behaved differently and accommodated the rise in technology. Mm. The, the challenge now is it seems to be going faster and faster. Mm. Uh, and that is whether we can adapt in time with the developments uh, of the technology as they move forward. Yeah, and it's, there's nothing new in terms of fear-mongering, is there? The Industrial Revolution created a lot of fear-mongering, the technological revolution, and now we're in this supercharged, high-speed train almost of um, advancement. Nigel, you said in 
your book, Robots Will Always Fall Short of the Capacity for Human-Level Moral Agency, no matter how hyper-real they are as simulations. We should therefore never give our God-given responsibility to be his moral agents on Earth over to machines, and we should never put machines in positions of authority over humans. Robots should never be co-creators or architects of our moral landscape. Rather, they should be seen as morally naive at best and be treated like children in that an adult human should always be responsible for them and their actions. Mm. Agreeing with that? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Still going Sounds with good. that. I like that. Anil, do you? Um, with most of it. I, I'm not sure about the treating like children aspect. You know, I, I, think, yeah. I think that's almost a little bit too much in our image still, but yeah, just yeah. In, in, in the part, that this, the stage of human life where we don't treat them as, as moral agents or mm. we shouldn't. You know, I, think, I think the form in which we treat these systems is yet to be determined, but it is as a complementary system where, where hopefully the issues don't don't arise in the se- in the way that the trajectory towards building human-like systems makes makes them arise yeah. yeah great well just a couple of minutes left now chaps so really just a chance to sum up our thoughts and offer any final thoughts Neil, any final thoughts on the topic of what it would mean to flourish alongside a fully generated ai so, I mean, recognizing that AI is many different things, mm. I think there's many positive visions we can have for the future as, as well. Um, one positive vision that I quite like comes from an old story about the Greek philosopher Socrates. And a friend of Socrates went to the Oracle of Delphi one time. This, by the way, came from a piece written by a philosopher called Carissa Veles in Oxford. And um, the, the friend of Socrates went to the Oracle and said... You know, is Socrates the wisest of all? He's a very wise guy, Socrates. And the oracle said, said yes, he's the wisest of men. And Socrates heard this news and wondered, how can this be? Because I know people who are, seem to be much wiser. And of course, the reason is that Socrates knew what he didn't know. And I think that's, that's the metacognition angle. That's something we can, we can build in to what we want AI to be like. In fact, I think we can go further. I think AI should be not just like Socrates, but like the Oracle. Mm. You know, oracles don't have their own agendas. They mm. don't have their own goals. They dispense sort of unbiased wisdom. Mm. And having that as a design principle, I think will lead us more in the direction of, of tools rather than synthetic mm. colleagues. Yeah. Totally agree. For me, it's education, education, education. We need to help uh, future generations understand enough of the technology to recognize its limitations, but also realize the opportunities. And if we don't do that, I think we are heading for a mess uh, because we will uh, empower these machines over our lives, as has already happened in certain circumstances, um, to uh, push us in directions that aren't we need to be masters. I don't know, we haven't said it in, in this series, but the term robot, do you know the original term? is? It's an old Slavonic word, first developed in the 1920s uh, by a guy who developed a, 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 a theater play about machines in a factory, human-like machines in a factory, and he called them robota, which means slave. Okay, so the word robot means slave. So yeah. autonomous robot is quite an interesting <laughs> concept yeah. because an autonomous, a, a freely acting slave is a bit of a contradiction. And we need to make sure that we remember that perspective, that, they, that we're not serving them, 
they are serving us and we are working with them and we are developing forwards as a society with this technology. But there's not going to be some great emancipation of the robots with uh, disastrous consequences. I don't think we're going to see Terminator or in, or no, that's 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 not happening. I did bring an Alsatian in to just in, you know because they're good for spotting Terminators, but it hasn't barked at all, so I think we're all okay. That's reassuring. It is. It has been. We're about reassurance. Well, chaps, that is the end. Thank you so much to my guests, Nigel Crook and to Anil Seth. We have been talking today on the big conversation about the robot race. How would humanity flourish in an AI world? And I I don't know about you. I don't know what you think about consciousness or the mind or the future, but it has been reassuring. As for me, I am off to build an underground shack in the woods. If you don't see me again, that's the reason. But thanks so much for watching the big conversation and somebody will be back. All the best. Well, that was the concluding part of The Robot Race, featuring Nigel Crook and Anil Seth, hosted by Andy Kind. And if you're wondering who set Andy up to read from an AI-generated introduction script both times, look no further, it was I. For part one, I copied the transcript of the introduction from a previous big conversation into ChatGPT and essentially just typed the instructions Please adapt this into an introduction for a show with this title, featuring these guests' names, mentioning these books, promoting the fact that Nigel has appeared before, and that you can access the full video by registering at thebigconversation.show, and also please reveal that the script was written by AI. And that was pretty much all I needed to do, other than prompt it to refine its phrasing a couple of times. And as for this episode, part two, I asked ChatGPT to do the same again, But this time, I also asked it to inject a little humour, especially for Andy Kind, who is himself, after all, a professional comedian. I know he appreciated it, really. So, thanks again for listening. Do let us know what you thought by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or by commenting on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or on Twitter, which is unbelievablefe. Register at thebigconversation.show and you will get exclusive bonus videos such as Nigel Crook's full interview and ebooks such as Dr. John Wyatt and Lord Martin Rees's conversation about robots, transhumanism and the future of humanity, along with regular updates and early access to future episodes of The Big Conversation. You will also get the opportunity to win a copy of Professor Nigel Crook's book, Rise of the Moral Machine. We will draw the winner at random out of the people who've registered, but hurry, because that offer is only going to last until the end of September. That's the bigconversation.show to register there. And we'll see you again on Unbelievable next week. <laughs>